This is Wasteland. Years ago, there was a place called the Land of Point. And that was because everything in the Land of Point had one. The barns, the houses, the steeples, the carts, everything. Even the people. Everyone in the Land of Point had a point on the top of their head. Everyone, that is, with the exception of Oblio. You're listening to Wastoids, and we're back with another episode of Nilsson Talks Nilsson. I'm Jason Woodbury. For this installment, we're getting to the point with Harry's son, the talented singer, bassist, and band leader, Kifo Nilsson. That's him performing Everything's Got Him from his father's early 70s album and animated film, The Point. A charming fairy tale about nonconformity, delivered with a hefty dose of Nilsson charisma and a touch of psychedelic inspiration, it's a classic and a longtime favorite of the Wastoids crew, which is why we were so excited to learn about Kifo's live point performances, which find him joined by a 14-piece band and guest narrators like John C. Riley and Pamela Adlon, who you heard at the top of this show, introducing the story of Oblio and bringing the point to life. On December 10th, he's back at it at Will Gear's Theatricum Botanicum in Topanga, California, along with guest narrator Kate Machucci, an actor and comedian who you've seen or heard with Garfunkel and Oates and in shows like Bob's Burgers, Steven Universe, Adventure Time, and many more. Kifo joined us ahead of the performance from his home studio to talk about his father's tunes, The Point, and a lot more. Let's get to it. Here's our talk. Kifa, thanks so much for hanging out with us here on Wasteoids. Thank you for having me. Well, yeah, so it's been really fun um, re-engaging and spending a lot of time thinking about the point. The point being a pretty great a pretty great Nilsson record on its own, but then when you combine it with the movie, it really becomes a very special thing. And it's been a lot of fun watching the 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 various versions and listening to these tunes. Is it a is it kind of fun for you too, specifically to engage with the the point? Uh, this being a a Nilsson project that you experienced not just because it was your dad's thing, but just as a kid yourself, right? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely something that I grew up around and I am familiar with it from when I was a kid. And it's always been, it's just, yeah, it's just kind of always been around. And that's something that it's it's hard to describe because you just take it for granted in a way. It's just there. And But then one of the cool things about doing it, engaging with it again as an adult and just doing this show and stuff is that you do find that a lot of people have a memory of it. You know, a lot of people saw it when they were kids and kind of occupies that space of like something that they saw that they maybe didn't remember that like, you know, like one of those weird shows that's like, Oh, I think I, but then when they see it again or whatever, it just like triggers all the memories like, wow, I, that, that was real, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. I think about that dream sequence in it and how, you know, if you're the right age, when you first see that, it's going to really kind of stick some very elemental place in your imagination. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think so too. I think it has that quality. Well, so I want to start off a little bit by asking you about how you actually got started. Your primary instrument is bass, right? How did you get started playing the bass guitar? Yeah, I would say my primary instrument is the bass. I've been playing now for 25, 26 years, something like that. And I picked it up when I was like 11, 10 or 11. And 
I had been playing in school band prior to that. I played on the trumpet and I played some saxophone just in the school bands and a couple other things. But I don't remember exactly what drew me to the bass. I know a friend of mine also picked it up around the same time. And I think it was sort of like, it might've been a vibe of like a lot of people were picking up guitar at that time, like in our friend groups and stuff. And like around school, like it was like picking up guitar and there was some feeling of like, Oh, but the bass is more interesting or that's cooler for some reason. It's a little different, a little different to play bass rather than guitar. I think that might've been the, uh, when, you know, you're 10, 11 has much logic as you have, not that you have much at all, but you know, just feeling like, Oh, that it's a little cooler. But what ended up happening was I, I had a friend who was playing, we picked up around the same time and we actually took lessons from the same guy at the local music shop for a little while. But basically really quickly, it was apparent that I just had a knack for it. Like we were pacing at the same time, but I would learn things faster and I would just like take on more advanced things and just like really quickly just felt very natural. It felt like, Oh, I'm comfortable on this instrument. And I've always had a little bit of an aptitude for it in that sense, to the extent that you can have. Uh, whereas on guitar, like I never, like every time I picked up a guitar, you know, I can play some chords, or whatever, but I've never felt that way on the guitar, like on the bass for whatever reason, just, it has always felt comfortable and pretty much that's it. Like I just, I was fortunate enough to get a, a pretty decent, like my first starter bass was like, whatever. That was just like, you know, one of those hundred dollar Ibanez simple. Uh, but then a few years in, I was able to get a decent bass and that felt really good. And ever since then, I've just been really comfortable on it. What, when you first started getting into music, what, what music were you interested in learning? Like what content, was there contemporary stuff that you were really psyched about? Well, I am a nineties baby. You know, I grew up in the nineties. And so when I was a kid getting into interested in music, the stuff, the prevailing stuff at the time was, you know, there's a lot of like kind of post-punk and ska and like, you know, that sort of alt rock stuff, like Nirvana stuff. And so that was definitely like around, that was a major vibe of what just all the kids were into, you know? Uh, I remember being a horn player pri previously, I did like ska a lot because it featured horns. Like that was just straight up like, Oh, it's, it's rock music with horns or whatever. Like that's just kind of how I processed it, you know? And then being a bass player, I was drawn to music that was, had complicated bass parts. So like Primus was a very early favorite and Red Hot Chili Peppers was an early favorite because Flea and Les Claypool were just doing incredible things on the bass. And I always just wanted to learn what they were doing. Um, but then took a, a pretty left turn and just picked up jazz and started playing jazz uh, and studying it. So I definitely listened to a lot of that, you know, coming up when I was, you know, by that, by that time, 15, 14, 15, 16, uh, I went to like some jazz camps and stuff and, uh, really picked up that dimension over on Bandcamp, You've got a collection of some recordings, covers of your dad's songs, uh, Nilsson sings Nilsson. And it's really cool to hear them. Obviously it sounds like you learned a lot of music and studied jazz very deeply, but I wonder if the process of learning, you know, your father's songs compared to other people's songs, what's that's felt like? Has it just been, on one hand, like learning any other tune or is there a, kind of a weirder or, you know, maybe more intense feeling to it? No, honestly, it really is about the same as learning anything else. That's how I process it. The, the main thing is that he's just such a good singer and his vocal melodies are just, I mean, to, 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 to approach them at all is just, and I'm not, I don't really consider myself as, I mean, I can sing a bit, but like, I mean, thank you for saying it, but like, I've never, I think of myself as a bass player, you know, I think of myself as a, as a performer, you know, like 
taking on, cause we've recorded those, we tracked those in 2014. So it's been a while now. And around then 2013, 2014, I hadn't done a lot of singing and it was really like, okay, let me try to do this. And you know, I think I underestimated it maybe in a way, like it sounds like he makes it sound so easy and then you try to do it and it's like, oh, okay, this is actually really hard. Uh, and, and figuring out where your range is and all these things. So really the vocals were uh, a lot to do that was, but everything else about it, uh, the production wise, that just was fun. You know, that was just like, let's just be musicians. Me and Cal, uh, who co-produced that, those recordings, let's just have fun in the studio and just do fun stuff. And really a lot of it was just that. When did you first start thinking about performing the point live? When did that idea first occur to you? Um, so 10 years ago, I had the great fortune of touring the country with Glenn Campbell as his bass player for his goodbye tour. And the aforementioned Cal is Cal Campbell, his uh, son who played drums for that tour and also on the Nilsson Sings Nilsson record. And when we were on that tour, at some point, someone had the idea to, when we did band intros, someone was like, you know, we should say this is Kifo Nilsson. This is Harry Nilsson's son. At some point, someone started to do that. And we quickly noticed that like that would get a big cheer. Like the, the crowd, the Glenn Campbell crowd overlapped with the Nilsson crowd, you know, the Nilsson audience. And at the time we were talking about it, like a lot then of how, you know, Glenn was on his last tour, but at the same time, a lot of his contemporaries were still out there t- still touring, you know, Ringo Starr was still touring, the Beach Boys was still touring in some capacity, you know, the Monkees were still touring back then. Like all of these contemporary artists from the late sixties and into the seventies were still out there doing it because they loved to do it. But my dad never performed live. He never did tours. He didn't, that was a, a whole dimension of his career that he just never explored. And we talked about how like, man, wouldn't it be great if there was like a Nilsson tour, if there was a Nilsson show. Like we were thinking about like, just like this sort of this gap that exists. And that was the original conversations that got that, that moved to the Nilsson sings Nilsson. Cause when the tour ended, we started recording that pretty much pretty shortly afterward. Um, and while we were recording that, we were just thinking about, well, you know, we could perform Nilsson Schmilson. We could perform the point. Like we just started thinking about those different things so it all just came out of those conversations and there wasn't any specific like, oh, it has to be the point or it has to be this. It was really just the sense of Nilsson music hasn't been performed live and it should be. That was really just the, the, the driving force behind it. Yeah. Yeah. So then eventually though, the idea comes to mind that the point would make for a good presentation. It's cause it's, it's got the whole package, right? You've got, um, the tunes and then you've got the story and, and great narration that, obviously is associated with it. Um, so how did those there, there you've worked with over the the last couple of years, a bunch of different, uh, narrators when you present the point at the, uh, at Will Gears Theatricum Botanicum in Topanga, which is a little bit of a mouthful, but is very cool to say also. Um, yeah, it's a good name for a place. It's a great name for a place. Uh, it kind of reminds me it, the, the setting seems to fit the, the pointed village a little bit, just in whatever way. It doesn't look the exact same, but somehow it still, you know, vibes that way for me. Um, but obviously the, the narrators you've worked with people like John C. Riley, Pamela Adlon, Kate Machucci, who you you're working with on this upcoming, you know, presentation, what has working with these great narrators taught you about you know, what a great narrator sort of needs to tell this story. Has, has, has it been that cerebral for you? At times, I think of it that way. I, I've, I've kind of thought about like, you know, how would you optimize or how would you get the best? 
But at the end of the day, what I really like about working with the different narrators is that I just want them to bring whatever they bring. I just want them to just do it the way they want to do it. And as the musicians, as the backup, you know, supporting them, it's our role to make sure that, you know, we're, we're keeping on top of our cues and stuff, but really I just want them to stretch out into it and do it however they want to approach it. And every time it's been a little different and that's been a lot of fun. Um, and especially between rehearsal and the performance, like the first rehearsal we did with John Riley, he was like almost perfectly spot on. It was like amazing. And then on the performance, he, he just exploded even more. And it was just like, Whoa, like he brought a whole new dimension on the performance. Like he, and you could tell like he had worked on it between then, you know, like just really bring something to it. And that's the stuff that you love to see as a musician or just as an audience member, just the way that different personnel can just bring their own life into it. And as a musician, as a, you know, band leader or whatever, I always think that's so important. And I really try not to micromanage in that respect. Like, obviously you, you want to get the cues right and stuff. You want everyone to be chugging along, but like, I want the musicians and I want the narrator and I just, I want them to be able to express themselves as musicians, you know, and, and as, as the narrator goes, like, I want that extra life. And that's really, so I don't, I don't think about it too much in terms of like, are they enhancing it in any specific way? I just want whatever it is that they bring to it, you know? For sure. For sure. And it's obviously something that's so cool about it is that all the different, the famous narration that's associated with it, right? There have been times where obviously people know the Ringo Starr narration, the Dustin Hoffman narration, Alan Thicke, your, dad, yeah. your dad's own narration on the record. So you've got all these, it's, it's kind of like the, um, the, the fun thing about it for me as a fan to, is to think about that all these different great performers get sort of, like there's always been license to go uh have other people fill in that role yeah totally and and to go back to the, like you know the the origins of this show i mean we always had that concept from the beginning of like oh it'd be really cool to have rotating narrator like that always made sense to us as something that we'd want to do for sure well my favorite point character is arrow uh oblio's faithful dog and um, I wonder, did, did you guys grow up with, uh, you, you were fairly young when your father passed away, but do you remember having a dog as, as, a as a family? Um, not while my dad was alive. No. Um, but we, I, I, we, I've since had a few dogs. Yeah. And my, my current dog is called Columbo. Oh, that's a fantastic name for a dog. I've been on a huge Columbo kick lately. Yeah. Columbo's great. And, 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 uh, you know, obviously named after the TV show, but also my dad had a song called Kojak Columbo, which is kind of a riff on, you know, the detective shows of, of the era. And the two yeah. of, two of the great detectives, obviously the night stalker and yeah. Uh, and, and Columbo. Yeah. So, so it's kind of a riff off that. And, and I named the dog Columbo and now he's currently sitting in my studio chewing on his blanket and he looks like he's about to eat a piece of it. And I think he just ate a piece of it. Yep, it is gone. He just ate a piece of his blanket. Well, I mean, you got to do what you've got to do sometimes. Uh, well, I'm curious, you know, your dad worked very hard to get the point made. He had, a, there's a famous story about tracking down an executive and having to jump off multiple flights and buy tickets on multiple flights just to get a seat next to one of these execs at ABC that had kept canceling on him. But I'm interested, you know, there's a great quote from him where he talks about how he came up with the idea of the point. And he said, I was on acid and I looked at the trees and realized they were all came to points and 
all the little branches came to points and the houses came to point. Anyway, I'm curious, have you ever listened to this on acid or played any of it on acid? I have not. Okay. But I do think that the simple, it, there's a very simple elegance to the title, the point. And every time we do it, the, the, there's a, it, it's like, it's a pun, obviously, when you just talk about all the different ways it can work, but like everything has a point and there's a point and this is the point and get to the point. And like every time you're at rehearsal, you say, okay, so the point is, and it goes, ah, you said the point. Yeah. But like, <laughs> it's, it's a, such a, it's like a powerful word. Like as far as words can have power, like it's, it's an interesting, flexible, dynamic word point. And when you say the point, it changes it or a point changes it or, you know, it's like multiple points, points of view. Like it's a very interesting and dynamic word. And I think that just as a word, like you could have called the story something else, right? Like you could have had the same story with a different title or different theme and maybe it wouldn't work as well. You know, it wouldn't kind of have that. I think that the name, the point, that word is actually, it does bring something to it in, a, in an interesting way. Yeah. Yeah. That's fantastic. Well, you know, so Fred Wolf, the animator who worked on the the point film and went on to do all sorts of incredible animation stuff. His CV on animation is nuts. Ninja Turtles and James Bond Jr. I think I might've been one of the only people who ever watched James Bond Jr. as a kid, but, um, um, but I'm curious, he, he once made a, a, a reference to the possibility that you could continue this story. I think he suggested the title, the never ending adventures of Oblio and Arrow. And I wonder if you've ever given any thought to whether or not you think this story you know, there's more stories to tell in the the point verse or whatever, or does there something, does it feel kind of, does that, how does that idea sit with you? I think it's great because I think when you talk about something like this, obviously there's this specific story of Oblion Arrow and Banishment of the Pointless Forest and this arc, but what keeps the whole sort of vibe of the entire thing together is that the characters are kind of quirky and interesting and memorable. And I think that when you have that and you get that part of it, you can tell whatever story you want and it's still going to be interesting. You, you want to know what Oblio does after, well, no spoilers, but you want to know what he does after this story. You want to know what Arrow does. Like, I think there's plenty of fertile ground for that sort of thing. Yeah. All right. Well, I mean, I, I, I think it could be interesting to see, to see what happens to see the further adventures of Oblio or all the other, you know, the characters there's more to go. There's more going on than, with the count than we know so we gotta you know we need to do investigative work so uh yeah i mean i i think there's there's definitely some dimension there and you know i don't know if you're familiar with the show adventure time pendleton yeah. ward there's something about i don't know pendleton Ward. i don't know but like there's something about that basic framework of a boy and his dog in a weird world that is it like that's the, the core of adventure time that i have to imagine like pendleton ward probably saw the point at one point and it influenced that in some way like it just feels like there's that that simple boy and his dog in a weird world dynamic that can expand in so many different ways. Like it's for sure. You know, it's funny that you, you mentioned that because re-engaging with the point and watching it as a, as a kind of piece of animation as a, as a creative statement. Yeah. It really is kind of remarkable how, uh, ahead of its time, it really does seem in terms of presenting a story that's appropriate for children, but not, uh, not didactic and it doesn't talk down to kids it feels very much like a uh an early example of what something like adventure time does where you can have very poignant stories told uh but also in this imaginative and 
fun and not heavy way, you know? So that's, that's that's something I had never thought of. Yeah. I mean, I I think there's, it's there. Like it's one of the powers of this whole material is that it's simple in a good way. Like it's straightforward in a good way. And it's like, because it's fairly simple, like, especially like musically, like the, the music's not particularly, you know, crazy complicated, not playing a whole bunch of notes or whatever, but that makes it so that the notes that you do play and the melodies that you do hear are just, they fit in such an interesting way. And, um, I love that. I love that about this material, how, how like just, it's not plain. It's just, it's just straightforward. And yet through that, there's endless ways to approach it. And that goes back to that theme of everything having a point and there's a point to everything. And I just think, yeah, there's, there's that layer to it. And that's always kept it interesting to me every time we've done it. Uh, I, I have a feeling that when I was thinking about it in a lot of ways, your, your dad's records could be very adventurous and kind of jump around stylistically a little bit. Um, but the point really does have a cohesive feel. Is it your, is this your favorite of your dad's records or, or does that honor belong to a different album? I mean, that's a hard question to answer, right? I mean, we, it's, yeah. I don't really think in terms of like favorite albums necessarily, but when I think of his career and his book of work, I sometimes divide it into kind of three distinctive eras where there's like the early era, which the point is right on the cusp of the end of the early era. Then there's like the Richard Perry Schmilson era. And then there's the sort of like pussycats kind of weirder when his voice wasn't kind of as strong. He damaged his voice during the pussycat session. So there's the mid seventies era. That's just kind of, and I, I view those as kind of three distinct eras. And the thing is, there's really good stuff in all of them. They're really great stuff in all of them. And some people overlook a little bit like Sandman and do it on Monday because they're kind of like his voice isn't as clean or the production's a little bit crazy, but there's the songwriting is still really good. And there's some really great songs on do it on Monday and, and Sandman. So I, I gravitate towards those sometimes, but then I often find myself coming back to like Nilsson sings Newman, you know, like Nilsson sings Newman is just such a well-recorded record. You know, obviously it's not Nilsson songs from a songwriting standpoint, but just like the way he presents those songs, like just the concept behind that record. I, I come back to that some a lot and yeah, it's that, that's kind of, I don't have a single favorite. I, I kind of think of it in different uh, eras and there's really good stuff all throughout. Yeah. Well, that's well said, but uh, it's really been a pleasure talking with you about the point. And uh, I am looking forward to hearing how this show goes. And thanks so much for hanging out with us a little bit and, and talking, uh, talking Nilsson. Thanks so much. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for having me. And that's uh, December 10th at Theatricum Botanicum in Topanga. All right. Well, we'll include links for people to get tickets and check out information in our blog post about this. And Kifa, thanks so much. I hope uh, we, I hope we can do this again at some point. Sure, anytime. Kifo Nilsson here on Wastoids. We've included all the info about his next performance of The Point on December 10th at the Theatricum Botanicum in Topanga. You can find more info and ticket links over at wastoids.com, where you'll also find more episodes of Nilsson Talks Nilsson, two of them featuring his sister Olivia. To have all your Nilsson needs met, check out 
the official Milson on TikTok and over on Twitter and Instagram. Check out at official Milson. This has been Nilsson Talks Nilsson. Our executive producer is Sam Means, and I'm Jason Woodbury. I wrote and produced the show. Thanks so much to Kivo for his assistance in recording this episode, and RRR Stevens over on YouTube for sharing some of that great Pamela Adlon performance which opened our episode. Our art for the show is by the incredible Madeline Stefanik. Check her out at www.madstefanik.com. You can find more podcasts, videos, and information about our four-episode anthology TV series on Night Flight Plus by checking us out at wastoids.com. And if you want to get in touch and share your favorite Nilsson song or story, you can always give us a ring anytime, 1-877-WASTOIDS. Leave us a message and listen here for, I don't know, more episodes of Nilsson Talks Nilsson in the future, I hope. Stay safe until then. <laughs>